Hello, everyone. It's another edition of the TetraCast. I am Brian Vitali. Joining me today are George Foster. Hi, guys. Adam Vitali. Halloween edition. Yeah, spooky edition. Ah, and spooky. James, James Galizio. Hey, folks. Bit of a different mic this week, so just uh, sorry for that. Yep, we have a different mic for uh, James. We are at the weird gap week where the UK has shifted their clocks, but the US hasn't. So George is on on a weird time for him. It is <laughs> Halloween at the time of recording. Uh, we are a week removed from, well, less than a week removed from finally getting new information about Final Fantasy 16, as well as some surprises from a Nintendo Mini Partner Direct. And obviously, it's the last day before November, the big month. So, Woo! yeah, we're, we're at the precipice or whatever sort of... Can you believe that next gen is less than two weeks away? It still doesn't feel real. It's, it's weird. I'm not, like, hyped, but I'm eager. Like, those are two kind of related but different emotions. It, it feels weird because, like, I wasn't really feeling the hype for, uh, like, PS5 or anything. But now in the last couple of days is... Uh, those little tidbits have come out, like the just how quickly you can load into Miles Morales and like stuff like the uh, amazing looking like Spider-Verse costume oh, and all yes. that stuff. It's just like, oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. And I'm I'm not super interested in Spider-Man. Just just not, not for any good reason. I'm just not. And then Demon Souls I've played. I'm interested, but I've played it. So I'm really kind of like I want to I want to try out that controller. Like I want to yes. hold that thing. Yeah, everyone's been talking about the controller, which is hmm. I do wonder how it's gonna feel. But like there was that there was that one video that one dude from IGN posted on Twitter, forget his name, where he just said, "Here's my review," and he just speedrun through a uh, Mario 64 level on on PC with it, and it's like, okay, I, you've convinced me. And then um. So Xbox also is launching, you know, soonish, and they don't have any clear exclusives. But I am curious to see like how Yakuza will look as it's like only true next gen version, at least for the time being. And then of course, you know, Game Pass is Game Pass. So exciting enough, even though we all wish Halo could have been there and some of their other RPGs that are baking right now. But until then, we're we're stuck with current gen. So let's talk about what we've. What we've been playing from the current gen systems. Uh, who wants to go first? I feel like as the the outlier here, there's a there's a similar trend with a few of you guys. So I'll, I'll start. Um, mine mine's only like a short one anyway. But I've been playing a little bit of the No More Heroes uh, re-releases that just got released on the Switch. Uh, I had previously played No More Heroes one like years and years ago when that was on the Wii and then a little bit on the PS3, but never like properly got it. Like I was like, yeah, this, this is cool. I can see why people like this, but it's not really holding my attention. Uh, so for with these re-releases, I was like, you know what? I'll start with two. I know how I feel about the first one. Maybe by starting with two, I can go back and be like, okay, yeah, really like two. Let's see what one's about as well. Um, and yeah, like No More Heroes 2 is just so much better. I don't I don't know enough about like the fan base or the series. Like I'm not integrated enough to know if like maybe that's a controversial opinion. Uh like I don't know if I'm like saying sacrilege by saying that the sequel's better, but like it's really captured my attention. Like I don't know if I then... should do this, but I kinda compartmentalize games like No More Heroes and Deadly Premonition and like these weird like 
vocal minority cult classic sort of games where it's like there's certain people that feel really strongly about these games, but I've never played them, so I never feel like I have any like input about how mm. good they are or how not good they are. Um, Man, if there was any uh, Tetracast for Colin to myth. Yeah. <laughs> um, so obviously these two games were announced with the Partner Direct. We're not covering them on our site, but we have a lot of people who contribute to us, like Colin Black, who's basically been <laughs> just gaga about these games and has probably put in like 20 hours already, I bet. Yeah. He was doing like playing till 6am with the first one and he's just finished the second. Uh, yeah, I... <laughs> I can see why a lot of people do like them. I still, I still wouldn't rank them like they've definitely got their charms. Like I wouldn't say that they're like in any of my favorite games of all time. Like, there's, they don't come into that list at all. But I, I'm definitely enjoying it quite a lot. Um, and the difference is when I think of something like Deadly Premonition, that's all charm, arguably no gameplay substance. Um, whereas No More Heroes actually does play really well. Like it's, it's simplistic, but it, it feels good to play as well. Um, so hopefully I'm going to finish two and then go back to one and appreciate that a bit more and then be in, be in the lead up to the third game, which looks just as cool. Now so it's just, me, it's just um, nice. No More Heroes 1 was announced as a Wii exclusive and eventually got ported and then 2 was multi-platform from the go. Is that what it was? No, I think I think 2 has never been ported. I might be wrong there. Mm, it I feels like Sir James would know. Well, I'm, I, I want to say it was ported, but let me double check that really quick. I feel like people would have made a bigger deal about it if it about this Switch release if it hadn't been ported. But just in my head, I can't think of where it would have been ported to. Maybe the PS3. I don't know. We're, we we are knowledgeable about the games we don't cover. <laughs> <laughs> we know what we're talking about. It's it's just a cool game that I'm glad it exists. I'm all for, even though I haven't played it, I'm all for having like these weird, interesting, just artsy almost. Just someone had an idea and ran with it and made No More Heroes, (laughs) as silly as it is on its premise and things like that. I will say about the second one, uh, I think the reason I like it so much more is that the first game has a lot of filler and fluff in between the fights. The point is, is that you have to earn the money to take part in the fight and like the boss fight is what you're playing the game for like but then the second one like still has these side jobs you can go do if you really want to and if you want to unlock some like new costumes and stuff but it's just boss fight after boss fight after level after level and it's really like it's just really fun to play whereas in the first one I'm, i've played a little bit now and i'm already like uh i don't want to keep like oh yeah collecting I, uh, I guess the second one was only on Wii. Huh. So, That's weird. Yeah, for some reason I thought like it had, it had arrived other places, but nope. Well, that then more people. I'm surprised people aren't making a bigger fuss. And like, it's finally on like a newer console. Awesome. Okay, that that's weirdly that's increased my enjoyment like a lot. Like just just to know that it's now more readily available is always a really cool thing. Like game preservation. I know the Wii isn't like a like a lost console or anything, but well, uh, it's it's, it's over ten years, so it's it's. It's retro now. That's how retro. It <laughs> yeah, sometimes I don't need games to be like gussied up and remastered and like let's let's put in all the content that was cut and just 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 have it available again. Just re-release it. Sometimes you just don't like let the game be as it was. Like I don't know if that's like a purist in me, but sometimes you say like, oh, here's their opportunity to fix all the things that the reviews pilloried or whatever. And I'm just like, nah, 
in some cases that works okay, but I don't think it needs to be like universally true that we have to keep re-releasing games with all these adjustments in mind and just keep taping it maybe, and gluing it together. Maybe it's weird for me to say this, but when it comes to those smaller games like No More Heroes and Deadly Premonition, to a certain degree, I feel like the faults of those games are as much a part of their identity as the like the things that they do very well. Yeah, I, so, I can uh, agree with you. Yeah. Except, you know, when, when the newest Deadly Premonition runs at like 10 FPS, I think that's a little bit too faithful, but they kind of, I think, cleaned that up a bit since that one released. Yeah. So is that pretty much it for you, George? Just uh, dipping your toes yeah. into No More Heroes? Yeah, quite a one this week. No, no massive Kingdom Hearts thing, but that comes out next month, so... Along with everything else. Uh, yep. So, Adam, I know that you were playing a game right before we led up to this podcast, and potentially still <laughs> currently. So what have you been up to? Yeah, so last week I finished up Wasteland 3, like I mentioned on the podcast. And now I got into Hades. So I think George talked about Hades already on a previous podcast, is that right? Yes, yeah, after, he, um, after he reviewed it, it. yeah. Yeah, so um, I the one super giant game I played in the past was Transistor, which I reviewed for RPG Site back in 2014 or 15 or whenever that came out, and I like that a lot. Now that game is more of a of a pure RPG in terms of like levels and skills and powering up your character and things like that, um, and I liked it a lot. But Hades um, is a kind of super giants. All their games feel like they're pretty different from each other. Um, besides, like, maybe a similar, like, isometric perspective. But Hades, I'm enjoying quite a lot. It's a roguelike, and I'm sure, you know, it's it seems to be doing really well for them, like, extremely well for them. It's uh, past a million sales, so. Oh, yeah. That was, and that was, like, uh, last month. So, considering the Switch version, it came out, and there's been... It feels like, especially this last month, the word of mouth for Hades has been incredibly good. Mm. So. Yeah, so I probably I probably don't need to sit here and explain what it is, but it, like it's it's got a very obvious and satisfying and lengthy like treadmill in terms of like progressing your character, where it feels I think where it really succeeds is it feels like every run that you do in this roguelike, you are achieving something, whether you're progressing towards one of the prophecies which is basically like a checklist of things to do that gives you bonus items whether you're um collecting currency to unlock new stuff for the hallway or to power up your character or to you know get better bonuses for your weapons and things like that plus so that's on the gameplay side of things plus on the narrative side of things each time you go through hades the levels of hell or whatever and and each time you return back to your house, you usually learn something about a character or about the premise behind the story. And it feels like there's like an endless amount of dialogue in terms of what all the characters can say and what they contribute. So it really I, avoids some of the repetitiveness in, in, a, in a way, in, in the fact that there's always something new that you're learning or achieving each time you do a run. And I've beaten, I've cleared it four times now with four of the different weapons. So there's six different weapons. That also changes things up a bit. And there is a larger mystery at play, which the premise, maybe I won't go into, but 
I'm not a, I'm not 100% sure how you're supposed to unlock it or achieve it. Uh, so it's one of those things. It's one of those things where you kind of just keep. Uh, it's like a mystery that you kind of have to find or solve, and I'm just keep playing and try to figure out what you have to do. Maybe you have to clear it with each weapon. I'm not sure. So uh, there's, sort, there's a there's a great carrot on a stick, if you will, in terms of why this game is like so addictive, and in terms of keep playing it. Yeah, it's amazing. Nah, I'll yeah. figure it out. It's, yeah, it's so, simple. Coming, you wanted to say something, games? Yeah, so I've been playing this too, and uh, I haven't cleared it quite as many times as Adam so far. I've only cleared it, I want to say, twice. Yeah, twice. But um, I definitely agree that for me, one of the biggest reasons why I've been enjoying Hades, I feel like, is the sort of contextual dialogue that you get. And it's not even like there's, I've seen some repeated voice lines, but. I want to say I read somewhere that Hades has like 3,000 voice lines or something like that, which is kind of crazy, considering that, like, there's just so many contextual things. Like, sometimes, like, whenever you'll pick up a new uh, boon from a god, they'll generally mention something about, like, what you've been doing. Like, if you've been clearing through your run pretty quickly, Hermes will comment on it. If you got a certain god, then, like, one of those other gods will definitely comment on it. And sometimes they'll have several different um, ways of of broaching a subject of like which gods you've already picked up for your boons previously. And then there's something as simple as every time you get like, even Zagreus, the main character, like kind of like mimics what the player is going to be feeling at any given time. Like when you get up to the first boss for the, uh, for your run, like by the time you've like played Hades, like, 10 or so times, that first boss is no longer really going to be a problem. So he's going to start making a joke about commenting on, like, guessing which of the three potential bosses it'll be. And sometimes it'll be right, sometimes it won't, and he'll have, like, different reactions depending on, like, what it ends up being, which it's just so charming. Just Mm. so charming. One of my favorite small things is the second boss, the Bone Hydra, just randomly once like so i fought him like i don't know 30 times or something and once randomly zagreus goes up to him and is like can i call you lerny his name is the boss name is like the lernian bone dragon or the bone hydra the lernian bone hydra and he's like can i call you lerny yeah i'll call you lerny and then like from then on his like health bar when you defeat him it just calls him lerny I, that's just so that's that's charming it's just a small we stupid thing about, yeah, i love it we were it. talking about that a little bit yesterday when you were playing this game and streaming it and i was just watching it um so the the rules isn't quite the right word but like the rubric the framework the foundation of a roguelike is or roguelite is kind of well set in stone but there, there's so many ways you can kind of play with the idea and just kind of clever little things that don't, they're not substantial, maybe not on their own, but the fact that the character in game has seen the boss several times and might start guessing, or oh, which one is it going to be now? Cause I always fight a boss here or, or renames it because they've become like familiar and uh, close to each other. It's just also, little... yeah. Like I've gone up to like uh, Theseus and I forget the mini- Minotaur's name, I think Astrius mm. and those two have so much different dialogue and it just like changes every single time and it's hilarious because like after i'd beaten theseus a few times he, um like sagras starts saying you know shouldn't i be considered the champion of elysium now <laughs> oh yeah 
<laughs> it's just like, oh man. Like, I won't lie. The gameplay for Hades is fantastic. Like, I was one of those people that actually enjoyed Bastion's gameplay, but I feel like it's not necessarily a hot take to say that maybe like super giants like maybe weakest element of their game so far has been like combat like because their art style and their like soundtracks and their stories have always been great but um this time around i really like hades gameplay which is one thing but just the way that even i'm surprised that no um no other companies have thought of this but one way to make each run feel different, even if most of the pieces are the same, is just to have the dialogue change. And it really does make, even though you're just doing the same thing over and over again, it feels like a cohesive narrative in a roguelike, which is fascinating. There's like a level of artifice to it where they're like, yeah, we know the player is just kind of, they're, they're used to that this is a loop. That It's just part of the game that you replay parts of it. So we're going to kind of trick them. And I don't mean trick, like deceive, but just kind of like, we're going to try to frame this where it's like, yes, you're repeating it in one way, but you're progressing it in another, like on a parallel path. It's, and I, I know, I, I see, I've seen some people like kind of be like, Hades isn't the first game to do this and maybe not, but I think it's the first game to really put it at its core. And of course I'm saying this having only heard the three of you talk about it because as always I'm late to the party on this one. Uh <laughs> I got I got 2 months before the end of the year, so uh I'll squeeze it in somewhere. Well, that's actually the thing. After playing this, it's not much of a role-playing game, I feel. It's it's like a roguelike action brawler like I mean, if so, we're still going to do a shout out for best non-RPG or like RPG adjacent this year, I'd say it has. It's, it's not even just as strong. Yeah. yeah, it's a shoe in. It's definitely going to be in the conversation at a, an absolute minimum. But yeah, I, right. personally, uh, it's it's so bizarre because it, it was one of those games that came out. Word of mouth was strong about it, and then we weren't talking about covering it, not really. Uh, and then we just like suddenly did, and it's just easily my game of the year. Like it is. Like obviously, I don't, I don't want to uh, crowd this because both of you two have talked about it quite a bit. But it is just essential. Yeah, it is just so easily recommendable. Uh, it nails pretty much everything it tries to do, and I think it's sort of a rare thing when you review a game. I often go back and I'm like, would I still give it the same score? Would I still talk about it so positively? Like, there's definitely an element of after reviewing a game and giving it some time you always like think of it a little bit differently i find and hades is one of the rare examples where i think i've gone no i would 100 percent give it a 10 out of 10 again and uh I, I can't i can't see any like massive flaws in it at all and i'm trying you... to think of like it like any specific issues i might have with it and i have to agree with you that like there's some things that maybe i would prefer to be a little bit different but i wouldn't say they're flaws by any means and yeah there's a reason I feel like why this game has been getting such widespread acclaim and very clearly like this is super giants magnum opus and they deserve all the praise we're getting for it. Yeah. We were talking last week about darkest dungeon and Epic game store. And I think this is like, 
this is maybe a slightly different topic, but it sort of proves like, so Epic gave Supergiant money to help develop this game and basically placed the game on the Epic Game Store early access back in 2018, so two years ago. And so obviously I didn't play the early access, but it presumably it was pretty different than what it is now or thinner, or not as much content or whatever. But the game wouldn't, this is a hypothetical, but it probably wouldn't be as it is now if it didn't get that, or both that funding and that early access exposure and feedback. It's like, I think that's like a success story and how a game can shape up from that sort of release framing, if that makes sense, where they basically took a proven developer, gave them money, gave them an opportunity to basically sell, sell the game early access, develop it, get feedback. And now it's become a kind of hit. So I think it worked out. I think it's confident that the game wouldn't, have also been a success story of the same degree if it released on Steam at first. Because you have to remember that, yeah, Supergiant's already been a successful developer. And like even Pyre, which I feel like clearly was their least successful game, seems like it still did perfectly well. And Pyre I mean, felt like it was the type of game that everyone who played it thought really highly of it, but it was a, but it's it a seems hard like it was a really hard game to describe. Yeah. What is this game? And like the, it didn't fall uh, yeah. in under any easy genre, so I think it was hard to like sell it. On the flip yeah, side, though, like Hades, from the very beginning, Hades was always going to be more of a financial success than Pyre because, especially on PC, people love roguelikes, and it, it it's going to be a much easier sell for people. It'll be curious to see this sort of stuff grow and shift and have different kind of avenues going forward. Obviously, Baldur's Gate 3 is on Steam Early Access. We've got Grounded on Steam and Xbox Early Access. I forget what the Xbox specific version is called. Game Preview, something like that. Yeah. Um, So obviously, it seems like whether it's Epic or Steam or Microsoft, just this idea of games being developed concurrently with being playable is going to be a defining factor of this gen going for this next gen going forward. I know obviously it, it, it's been around a while, like as early as those Indiegogo, uh, is it pillars one that was on there? I'm trying to remember, but so it's been around a while, but it feels like it's now we're kind of in like, that is, that is a true pride and true paradigm now. And this is and one it's thing not, I'm it's bring not up even earlier. just, it's not even just games that are specifically labeled early access, even games that are released sometimes get significant updates even stuff like no man's xenoblade 2 or final fantasy 15 obviously or just there's a bunch of games that get a bunch of updates i don't know if final fantasy 15 is the best example it's i would say it's better than how it started but that was just two big games that released and they're not like early access releases um but ghost of tsushima is getting a big update and all this stuff and like it's just well, so it's it's not, it's not games that are listed as early access. That are a bunch of PS4 games are getting like PS5 performance modes through backwards compatibility. Like Tsushima is going to be 60 FPS. I want to say I heard like God of War is going to be 60 FPS. It's kind of interesting I, how like I feel like nowadays we can say for the vast majority of games that you cannot be confident that the game they are at release is going to be the same game exactly a year or two down the line. Because 
so many games these days, like I'd say most games do get post-launch support in one form or another. Isn't it nice as well that like uh talking about Hades is just so infectiously positive to talk about. Like I have heard I've I've heard people who don't like it like quite as much as everyone else, but like I haven't heard a bad thing about this game since it's launched. And yeah, like there are games I can think of this year that have come out and it's like done well and we've all been like, yeah, they're good and sort of move on. But Hades has just remained as this sort of this was awesome, like this was really good. We all like this and that's that's just such a rare, nice thing. So By the way, what what James was referring to break. earlier. Sorry, I was just gonna say what what you were referring to earlier is that um for part of our RPG of the year cast rewards, whatever you want to call it, awards, not rewards. Um We've recently had a category for tangential games, games that we wouldn't feel 100% confident listing with, you know, true RPGs, which as which is a nebulous genre to begin with. So last year, and then kind of a similar story, it was Sekiro in a similar place, maybe not quite as highly regarded just generally, but kind of this, yeah, it's got the similar DNA. It's a, a really good game, well-regarded. So we, we kind of gave it a an accolade as this tangential game that we would recommend no. RPG fans play. Though it's funny, because I remember during that cast, we even said, you know, we probably could have actually just reviewed this as an RPG, too. Yeah, but we probably we didn't. That's, that's going to be always a tricky thing. And we, some of us have been doing this for years. And it's always a tricky thing with being a genre site, which there aren't that many genre sites. Like, um, to kind of pull back the curtain for a bit, like, just recently, we've been wondering, like, should we cover, like, Puyo Puyo Tetris, too? Because there's, like, a story mode that has very explicit RPG elements with level ups, like, equipment stats it's like but that's only one mode and realistically the people buying Puyo Puyo Tetris aren't going to be buying it for that mode they're going to buy it to play like multiplayer with their friends which is very explicitly not an RPG and also along that line as well speaking as basically (laughs) the person who always tries and suggests games aren't quite RPGs that we should talk about including I guess Hades uh, there's the Avengers which we weren't really that interested in talking about. Uh, rest in peace, Avengers, by the way. Um, and then I sort of made a case to do it, and we did. Like, it's RPGs are hard to define, I think. It, it, well, especially when, like, Final Fantasy X and Tales of Vesperia are two very, very different games. It was just off the top of my head, but you'd both easily classify them as RPGs. It's just how the genre works. <laughs> like, there's no rules, there's no rhyme or reason. Like, no one person has the definition, so that's what makes it hard. We've we've talked absolutely about wild how like over the last couple of entries, like Assassin's Creed has just been a true blood RPG. It's like, yeah, it's kind of weird. We're like this big, long-standing series. We just decides to enter our wheelhouse. Like we're we're, we're we live here now. Like oh okay, Assassin's Creed. Um, make yourself comfortable, I guess. <laughs> And then I want. Speaking, I this is this is that... off topic, but speaking of Marvel, I saw someone post the other day that like Rise of the Tomb Raider on Steam had more concurrent players than Marvel at some point, which like Rise oh, of the Tomb Raider or was it Shadow, whatever one of the Tomb Raiders, which you know Crystal Dynamics, Eidos, like that's one of their previous games. They sort of collaborate. It's just kind of like that's not that's not a live action service game. That's just a single player game, and it has more concurrent players. Though, I do wonder if some sort of meta thing was going on where, like, even now people use that game as, like, a benchmark. So I wonder how many of the people that were concurrently playing that were reviewers that were working on, like, RTX 3070 reviews 
the oh, people testing out their new that. cards. So, like, how many of those people were actually playing? How many of those people were just using it as a benchmark to test out their new hardware or even reviewers testing out new hardware? Because I, I also, do think Shadow of the it, it's also, I think, it was one of the earliest games that had clear ray tracing support. At least it was used to demo it. I mean, Tomb Raider was yeah. kind of, we're, we're kind of in a tangent now, but I remember the first game was also one of their big, like, here's our hair. Tangent. Yep. So th- that series, for whatever reason, has always kind of been like a flagship for those sort of rendering graphical RT technology things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hades is, according to Open Critic, the second highest reviewed game of the year, tied with Last of Us Part Two behind Persona 5 Royal. Wow. Take, it, take that for what you will. It's sitting at a 93. And I know that that number is, you know, in a vacuum, maybe meaningless, but highly reviewed game. Highly, highly thought of game. So I guess 100% I would... of critics recommend based off them, which sounds about right. Yeah. The Rotten Tomato score would be 100. So I have finally started a, another game of my own. I'm not going to skip this week. I have started Neo 2. Finally. I no longer yes. can, like, talk about planning to or thinking about it i actually have i'm about halfway through it i've put about 15 to 20 hours into it i say halfway because i guess i'm on like the third of five regions uh first of all i'm I'm not sure why i waited so long to start this game because like i i haven't played a lot of dark souls likes but i've played the whole that whole series i've played bloodborne and i have played demon souls and i've pretty much liked all of them to varying degrees so when you never play neo one no, I never did. Huh. I I don't know. Like, it didn't have as high a word of mouth. Um, I, I don't think I really ever gelled with that the protagonist on it. Like, I just thought it, was, it just seemed kind of boring to look at. I don't know. Um, there, it didn't have, like, a, anything that hooked me. But then Neo 2, just not, not to the same extent Hades did, but had really good word of mouth. It seemed like it did everything the first game did, but better, better balanced. And I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of waiting for a PC version. So if that's announced within the next like month, you can you can give me credit because I finally bought the PS4 version. Um, uh, so a couple things. First, I guess I didn't realize that it was more. I don't know if arcadey is the word, but like it's not an interconnected world. It's mm-hmm. selecting missions from a map, like enumerated missions and submissions, which I don't think I like as much on paper. Though it does allow them to do a few things slightly differently. You can. Uh, kind of, you can shift the environment more drastically than you would than you would be able to if you had to connect it connect it all. Um, there's a there's a very clear deliberate passage of time from area to area, like across years, that you couldn't do if it, if the whole like game space was playable in one like in one I don't know connected location. Uh, the the loot is kind of different. I hate the word loot. I don't know why I use that word, but um, I actually really like how in souls games in most of them anyways um where specific gear specific items specific you know quest key items or whatever are all found in like specific locations like there's like a very there's a very clear and detailed level of design where it's like you get the the uchi katana here you find this armor piece there where in neo 2 it's more like it's more, I hate, I don't know what the best comparison is, Diablo-style loot, where it's like, if you fight a certain archer, they might drop 
gear that would make sense for them, but it's random and it's tiered and it, it comes with different abilities, which on paper, I don't think I like that as much. I'd rather have like bespoke, clearly deliberate. This is where you get this equipment. But then I bring all that gear to the forge area, the blacksmith, and like the tinkering there is really, really addictive. Adam, who's been watching me stream this just over Discord, he's probably seen me like sit in the blacksmith area for like 40 minutes at a time. Like, yeah, I don't know what things. you're doing there. Yeah, forging things. Like, you then you can temper things to like change what benefits you get. Um, if you use a certain weapon, obviously you want to get boosts on your gear that supports your playstyle, or um, sometimes you might get a specific piece of gear that kind of will shift how you play like man now i get uh lifesteal whenever i use strong attacks so i'm going to try using those more often you know things like that where it can kind of travel both ways down that road so i feel like i've kind of been a little bit aimless on this game uh talking about it but i've just i don't know why i waited so long like it's i love dark souls 3 which is the last real game of this sort that i played 2017 or whenever that was 18 16 i don't remember so I'm like, man, why did I wait so long for this? I guess the, the the answer there is that I was waiting for a PC version, but then I just, I guess my patience ran out. How how are you finding the difficulty? Uh, sort of, when I played, I, I finished the first Neo, really enjoyed that, uh, but I found like the whole of it really stressful. Like this this was before I considered myself like fairly okay at games, uh, and before Sekiro, which I would still call the hardest game I've ever completed. Uh, and then when playing Neo 2, I was like, I just, I just can't be dealing with the stress. Like, it was just too stressful. My, to my first, like, two or three hours were really bad. I don't know if I was just rusty or learning the game or just weak, like, in the game. Like, I I died on the first mission several, several times. And I actually kind of felt like, man, like, maybe I'm old now. Like, I can't play these games anymore. <laughs> uh, but, no, eventually... I don't know if it was just finally finding a, a gear set that I liked. I've been playing as kind of like a high magic, high ninjutsu switchblade user. Um, slash a lot of bonuses to like archery. So like being able to like pick off weaker or, 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 or stagger enemies from a distance before getting in close. Um, but so I've... Now that I'm further in, I feel like I am enjoying myself more. I'm not dying as often. You still die frequently, but it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like it's more just learning the levels and less like I stink at the game now. Um, I will say that sometimes when I'm fighting a boss, like for the first or second time, I play like super like cowardly. Like I'll cast magic from a distance. I'll summon an ally. I'll throw bombs like and try to get them burning, and then like just wait for all those poison or burning ticks to like to go through first. And then when I clear a boss in my second try, I'm like, man, I was a coward. Like I I played that so cheaply. But then I read like comments online where it's like this boss took me thirty tries. I'm like, you know what? I'll play like yeah. a coward if it means I can clear it on my second or third try, rather than. You, uh, there's one boss I can think of at the moment that really gave me issue it's it must be like no it's not super far into the game but it's like this cat that like you're in a forest and this cat's like jumping and then spinning into like a oh blade. yeah that Ugh, kick my most, ass. Mo most of the other bosses i can kind of see what the intent is i think my favorite pure boss so far i don't remember the name but he's like this snowy ogre with this big sword and he just has like a very clear and pure design where he like takes these big swings and like 
you can easily time your dodges like very methodically. And then he, he like lunges forward and he has an opening and that's when you go in and get a couple swings in. Like it just, it just made sense. It was like, I get how this, I get this boss. And then he like shoots shockwaves at you. So you got to like move laterally. But then that cat thing was just kind of like, I'm going to spin the fuck around like forever and never <laughs> stop. And just run into you over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm like, I don't know. Because I, that was actually one of my favorite bosses early on, because I felt like, because if I remember correctly, it had a weak point on its chest, and if you hit that, it would get, like, it would do, deal heavy key damage, and then, like, because the build I ended up using was, uh, I used Tompas for basically damaging key, and then once they were low or out of key, I'd switch to an Odachi and just, like, do a ton of damage that way, but, um... Yeah, that boss, I never had so much issues. And I want to say that if you hit it while it was, like, in midair or something with, like, a projectile, it I, I could be misremembering because it was over half a year ago at this point. But uh, it might be able to stun it. I, again, I could be entirely wrong. But I, I just know that I didn't have an issue with that boss. So it's like, huh. I, I always have the and I always have this issue with Dark Souls games. When I get a boss, like, a sliver of health, they start like blocking a whole bunch and it's really hard to get that last five percent to just go down and then I've, I've died a few times where it's just like i bet i can fit in one more swing oh never mind i couldn't i'm dead um one thing that is a bit different that i'm not sure i like is there's a lot more itemization making sure you have enough ammo making sure you have all your talisman and the ninjutsu and magic system where it all where a good a, a percentage of it will replenish upon using shrines um works okay but i was fighting this one online boss and i guess they called it an online boss because he was added like post-release it's just a one-on-one -on -one human duel with this guy who used uh magic a lot and it took me a few tries to beat him i don't remember his name um and whenever you retried like when you would die it would give you like press x to retry simple but it wouldn't start you like at where you were and how many items you had starting the fight it would just literally place you into the mission again so basically every time i retried i would have fewer and fewer arrows or items or whatever so i eventually just kind of like quit to the playstation screen and back and i was just like this is a little bit silly like it should just start you where you were for a boss like that i understand if it's like at the end of a level but if it's like this level is purely just the boss anyway that's a very i don't know that's a very low level thing um I have enjoyed just how many tools are are in your arsenal, uh, where you've got you've got your obviously your weapon skills, you've got your magic, your ninjutsu, you've got your yokai abilities, and you've got your yokai shift transformation. So it, it is a lot of meters to kind of keep track of, but it ends up making so you can have some really cool synergy. Where like if I poison my weapon and then cast the Yokai ability that launches the snake at them that also poisons them and depletes their Kai. And then like if you have gear that does extra damage to poisoned enemies, or you've got a soul core on you that builds up the like the builds up the poison sacks quicker, you can really come up with some really cool synergies. Um or or even if you don't you don't you can't you don't have to specialize into one thing. You can use like your Yokai ability to poison an enemy and then use your weapon to like electrify them, which slows them down. Uh, one thing that I do think is a bit silly is that there are so many like passive talents, traits, whatever you want to call it, where you get it on your gear, you get it on your soul cores, you get it from your titles. Like when you kill like 
X skeleton soldiers or Y yokai. You get these titles that give you like, well, like this increases your Kai damage by two or your, your yokai shift by 1% or your soul cord rate drop rate by half a percent. And then if you join a clan online, you get more little passives. Like this is this this clan increases your luck. This clan increases something else. And then like there's a T set where like depending on how you arrange your T in your hut, you get more passives. I just feel like it's two or maybe one or two layers too much. I feel like it could have just been cleaner if some of these were just kind of like trimmed out. So I, there's a, there's a lot of numbers. It's if you can go into the menu and see like exactly what all your percentages are for different resistances and different uh different very very specific sorts of like here's here's your resistance to poison. Here's your uh here's your chance to like here's your luck drop rate when defeating yokai or or things like that. So I feel like it could have been kind of less is more sort of thing, but that's that's just a nitpick. It's once you once you get something that all jives and works together, I'm glad to have all those passive bonuses. So trying to like learn it, it was kind of a, it was a bit of a learning curve just to figure out like how it all how it all fit together, how it all interlocked. Um, but yeah, I'm planning on going right back to it right after this podcast is done. To be honest, <laughs> one, one of these thing days I'm going about- to just have to like i have not really played many souls like games in fact like the only ones i've played are the german developed the surge games which are both just okay they're not bad games but they're not like fantastic either um so I, one of these days i need to just like do a, like a demon souls dark souls neo marathon and just do them all i feel I like, like i would enjoy them out. i just haven't yeah probably it's funny because I, I think I've mentioned this, but I have like a group of friends from high school that play pretty much every Souls-like game. And recently they've been going through all the ones released on PS4 and getting like the platinum trophies for them. So like, even though I feel like, well, I can't even say I don't play that many Souls-likes because I've played all the Dark Souls, both Neos and so yeah, but... It's just been interesting, like hearing from them, like what they feel like about all these different games. Because if if any uh, anyone out there probably has like a nuanced opinion about each game's strengths and weaknesses, it would be them. So it's just sometimes fascinating to hear them talk about how they feel about these games as they're going through them for like a hundred percent completion. They really liked uh, Neo One until they got to the DLC because. Um, not even because the DLC was bad, but because if you wanted to get all the trophies for the DLC for Neo 1, you basically were forced to do the added New Game Plus difficulties that they introduced to the game with each of the DLC packs, which is a mistake that they did not repeat with Neo 2 so far, probably because they had people really angry that they had to play through the game like four times to get all of the trophies for the DLC. I know like but, if you so- play through the new game plus mode on Neo 2, you can get like different tiers of gear or whatever. I'll probably just play through it once like and then play through the DLC that's out now. Um I don't think I'm really going to be like super completionist, but not out of interest, just more out of like I don't want to I don't want to sink 100 hours into this game. I know we didn't cover it on the site, but if any of you actually like did any of you play Sekiro? I did not. No, oh man, like because every time it's brought up, because it is one of those that we always use an example of. We could have covered this, but didn't, or doesn't quite fit in. It's just it, in the same way as talking about Hades, it just makes you go, "God, that was a good game." Like it, it's such a shame you guys haven't played it. 
One thing about Neo that is a bit difficult is that the story is not hard to follow, but it's a little bit tricky to follow because it has like a really large cast of characters, but a lot of them you kind of only see once or twice and then they're not relevant anymore. Like you, you fight this, you fight this guy. I think his name is Yoshimoto. He uses like electric weapons and archery. And like, he's got like his two lieutenants that are under him that like each have names and biographies. And then like, you'll find this one guy who's, uh, he's like, uh, you, one of the biggest NPCs is, uh, Nobunaga. He's kind of like a feudal Lord that you've kind of thrown your support behind. And he's got a lot of like retainers and people who work under him or allied with him. One of them is like a spear user who goes by Mataza of the spear, but that's, that's more of a title than a given name. Like he's got his other name, which is called like Meta something. And then there's like another character who's also allied with you, who also uses a spear. So it's like, wait, so now I got to like keep these two apart. And then the game also likes to rely on people going by titles. Like, you you know, this one person named Mumio, who is like a yokai hunter, but she is not the first person to have that title. She has another name that's her given name. And then you meet this other person named Dozan, who also once went by Mumio. And it's just like trying to keep these shifting titles and similar characters kind of apart. And it's been it's been kind of intriguing. And I really like the layers of the story. But it does kind of it kind of has that Final Fantasy 13 bit where you in order to really kind of parse it, you kind of do go into the dos- the dossiers and like the, the codex at your hut or whatever. And it's really kind of fascinating some of the stuff. Oh, I also forget that uh, the, the, the player character also has like a relative that looks really similar to them. So just lots of different wrinkles. None of those things individually would be hard to keep track of. Like, oh, two people that uses that use the same weapon type, that's not that big a deal. Oh, two people that used to go by the same title, that's not a big deal. Oh, two people that look alike, that's not a big deal. But just all of those things interlocked together, it just kind of ends up being just a little bit difficult to follow, at least on my first Remind me, this person that looks like the player character, the player character is player-created, so is that, like, also player-created? Like, Alright, so this is, this is kind specifically of... Specifically to look is, like the player-created character? This is kind of minor spoiler territory for Neo. Um, you fight a boss, and then they remove their mask, and they look like you. And at first I'm wondering, like, is this a Empire Strikes Back thing, where it's supposed to be, like, symbolic or whatever? But then you also learn, like, throughout the mission that your father had two half-demon children. Um, so they're your sibling. That happened. Then that's, they look like you just because they're related to you. So I was like, oh, I get this. And so it's just kind of, it was confusing because it's framed in this very, like, almost overused trite way where it's like this is the player character but evil this is dark link but it's like no it's a different well, character. i think the question was was simpler than that it's like you literally use a character creator to create your character and then the game just sort of like takes your created character and like yes. it slightly okay yeah so it's just it's 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 kind of a obviously like most games of this type the story isn't really at the forefront though it is more so it's it is to more of an extent than it is in dark souls um, and some of the characters really are kind of um, compelling and interesting. There's been a few times where you have to uh, kind of pick your allegiances. Like this, this you meet this really cool character who's like half yokai uh, called Kuroku, I believe his name is. Um, but then like it pits him against this other guy who's really loyal to Nobunaga, who's uh, very like um, he uh, what's the word? He's very human centric. He thinks any he thinks yokai are like a blight, and he doesn't trust you at all because you're you're a shiftling or half. 
but then you can kind of you can kind of you know show him the error of his ways or whatever like he's he's kind of very close-minded but he's uh, you so you can kind of just say like well you're you're a bigot you're an asshole you know i don't want anything to do with you but he's allied with you so you kind of don't want to like you don't want to you know you don't want to push him so that he's like purely antagonistic towards you. You want his strength on your side sort of thing. So it does play with some cool, interesting ideas like that. Uh, but it's not at the forefront. Like, don't I'm not playing this game for the story, but it's it's what what is there is pretty cool, if not sometimes a little bit tricky to follow. But yeah, Neo 2, I'm enjoying it a lot. I don't know why I waited so long. Does that cover? I think James had one one more thing he wanted to talk about. Looking at yeah, I talked about the uh, Pokemon DLC a bit last week, um, but I guess very brief. Just gonna say that I've uh, played a bit more of it. Uh, finished up the story or quote unquote story content in it. Um, my full impressions for the expansion pass as a as, in, as a whole will probably be up either later today or tomorrow. Um, because I'm I'm done I'm done writing it. I'm just waiting for people to look it over and then I can like put screenshots in there and whatnot. But um, long story short, uh, obviously I was a very big critic of base game Pokemon Sword and Shield, but and I kind of say this in my impressions piece, which I guess is a review for the expansion pass. But I feel like now that Sword and Shield has gotten this expansion pass. It's probably the, in my opinion, the strongest Pokemon experience since Black 2 and White 2. And stick with me here, but that's because like X and Y, they were also disappointing for a ton of people like Sword and Shield, but they never got the chance to be fixed. They never got their third entry. They never got a follow-up. I feel like it's relatively clear that originally a Pokemon Z or whatnot was in the cards. It was planned for, and it just never happened. Most of that content just got pushed over to Pokemon Sun and Moon, which were good games in their own right. But I feel like myself and others had some issues with the overall structure of that game. My problem with it was that while it was cool that Wild Pokemon could call for help, it kind of made things annoying if you're trying to catch Pokemon. And it's like, oh, it called for help. It's like, can only catch them when there's only one on screen and stuff like that but um yeah I everything if you like uh pokemon more than cold steel <laughs> <laughs> but no yeah, being, yeah. Being, being less cheeky about it so this is really quite a remarkable turnaround in your eyes anyways where I remember we kind of were talking we've talked about pokemon on and off throughout the whole year basically because this is the pokemon release and it's attached to this game that really wasn't received. I won't say it was received poorly, but kind of like lukewarmly, Sword and Shield. And you're sitting here saying that this is the best Pokemon's been in nearly a decade. Or how long was, how long ago was Black 2 and White 2? I don't remember. In several like, years, anyway. Yeah, something like that. But it's just like, for me, a big portion of it... Well, first off, Dynamax Adventures are my favorite endgame activity in a Pokemon game yet. Because, like... so. When Max Raid Battles were first shown off for Sword and Shield, I honestly had the opinion of, okay, yeah, it, it'll it be an endgame, like, raid-type activity. I'm sure it won't actually be all that deep. And I feel like even if that was maybe being a bit pessimistic at the time, it definitely felt that way. 
I had a couple of issues with max raid battles that have only kind of gotten worse as like time has gone on. Like I don't think I even mentioned some of my issues with it in my review, but if I were going to rewrite that review nowadays, I definitely mentioned that I feel like it's annoying just how often like shields come up for like max raid Pokemon. So it's like you get down their health bar life by a third and it's like, ha ha ha, here's shields and you need to hit the max the uh, Dynamax Pokemon like four times to damage it again and just happens so many times. It's like, uh, this is just a drag. <laughs> um, so the way that Dynamax adventures work, and I kind of briefly talked about this, maybe not so briefly talked about it last week, but just as a refresher for folks that maybe didn't listen. So it's so much like Max Raid Battles, you can do it either as like solo with NPCs to help you, or you can do it in a multiplayer group. And you go into these <clears throat> this Dynamax adventure, and you basically have four lives. If any of the Pokemon in the team get knocked out four times, you get kicked out. And you have to go through a variety of max raid battles, without the annoying shield mechanic, by the way, to get to the end to have a chance to capture a legendary Pokemon. And what makes this really interesting, I feel like, is the fact that you do not choose the Pokemon that you bring in for these Dynamax adventures. Instead, you have a selection or a vague selection of predetermined rental Pokemon that you bring into battle for you. And so it's interesting because maybe when you start up a Dynamax adventure, you'll be forced to use a Pokemon that you've never used before that maybe you're not super familiar with. So it's kind of funny how we were talking about Hades earlier because Dynamax adventures themselves are basically a roguelike sub-game built in the Sword and Shield now, and it's actually fascinating. Because, I can like, it's corrupting my wholesome Pokemon experience. I'm just kidding. But it's fascinating because you have, like, these branching paths where you see a silhouette of the Pokemon that you might be on these paths that you can tackle, and then you see, like, a typing. And then you can see stuff like berries that can regenerate health, or if there's a trainer, they'll give you a hold item, like, a choice of hold items that you can give to your Pokemon. And what's really interesting about the way it works is that it forces you to actually consider, like, the way that you're tackling these Dynamax adventures. And I didn't really expect that to be something that you really had to consider going in. Because, like, okay, you choose a Pokemon, but you don't know what the final typing is going to be for that legendary Pokemon at the very end. So you choose a Pokemon, then you start up, and it gives you, like, a brief overview of, like, what the typings are, like, through the dungeon. And then at the very end, it's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm weak to the, to the legendary Pokemon at the end. And it shifts it from, okay, normally it might be easier to rush through one route with the team that you guys have, but if you, then you might just get wiped at the end by the legendary Pokemon because you don't know exactly because there's po legendaries that share typings and whatnot. For example, like, <sighs> Kyogre <laughs> is really annoying. I fought him a couple of times. It took me like three or four tries to actually beat him because he has this like one move that hits your entire team. And because of rain, he gets not just stat bonuses for using water type attacks, but an additional bonus because it's raining. So even if your Pokemon isn't weak to water type attacks, it's still going to take a ton of damage. And if you faint it all on the way there, it's just asking for trouble. But, um, yeah, so it's like a bit of a metagame where it's like, do I, do, does your team want to take a route that will be 
easier to get through, but maybe you won't be as strong as, or might be not the best matchup for that final Pokemon in the Dynamax adventure. Or do you want to take your time, maybe risk having a faint or two along the way, but have ultimately better Pokemon and items for when you tackle the legendary Pokemon at the end. And one of the things I love about the, um, the second um, DLC in general is the way that, yeah, there's a ton of legendary Pokemon, but there's always something, they're never just given to you. Like with the Reggies, you still need to find their temples and then do a little puzzle to open them up before you even have a chance of capturing them. For the legendary birds, they split off into each of the games now, three wild areas, and there's something you have to do to capture, to even like tackle them. Like Zapdos, you need to catch up to on your bike. Moltres, you have to like cut off so it runs into you because you can't catch up to it with speed, but it has a predetermined route. So you can, if you know where it's going to end up, you can do that. And then Articuno, I mentioned last week, you had to do a sort of puzzle. And like, if you managed it right, it would battle you if you didn't it would just fly away but the dynamax adventures even though it's the same thing for so many of the legendary pokemon in the game it's fun because every time you go into it it's going to be different every time it's going to be slightly unique you're going to have a pokemon that maybe you've never used before or maybe you haven't used in this context and there's so many legendary Pokemon that you find in these Dynamax adventures that there's a reason to keep going into them over and over again. And even once you have caught the legendaries, like the shiny catch rate in those are apparently much higher, especially if you have like a shiny charm. And even if you don't make it to the end or if your team doesn't like manage to defeat the legendary, you still get to keep one of the Pokemon that you've caught along the way. So there's dozens upon dozens of hours that you can spend just in this one section of the DLC. And if the one complaint I had with Sword and Shield was that it didn't feel like there was a real legitimate reason for me to continue playing after the credits had like happened. This for me is like a significant endgame activity. And it's not, it's completely unlike anything the series has done before. So it's fresh, it's interesting, it's fun. And it actually requires you to collaborate a bit, which it actually sounds like it requires like some strategy, some forethought. There's some difficulty in place that usually isn't there. Um, I have two yeah. comments. First of all, I say like the, the the trade-off in terms of compelling gameplay for having a bit of randomization about which Pokemon you get, which hold items you get, which berries you find. Like some people only say like, oh, I want to use my Pokemon. I don't want to use these rentals. But the, the way you're describing it, though, I think the trade-off is worth it. And yeah, it about, wouldn't work unless you did have that element of randomness. And then talking about difficulty, I remember the last time I really got into endgame Pokemon, it was either Emerald or Platinum, I forget. One of the Battle Tower Frontier houses, whatever they're called, they changed the name a few times. Um, you had to fight through 100 uh, floors of trainers. I got pro progressively more difficult. So I had like uh, a like the kind of like the smogon you know meta sweeper whatever um like i wasn't gonna have any trouble like this is guaranteed to win but then you start fighting people who use the hold items that give them a random chance to go first and then they use moves like sub-zero ice or fissure or whatever that have like a random chance of being instant kills and then once like i just got to like floor 91 92 93 and like instantly lost two of my pokemon to basically rng like that just pure 
I randomly go first and I randomly kill you. There's nothing you could have possibly done. And I'm like, that is just the most BS artificial difficulty ever. But the way the game was designed, that was kind of what was required because otherwise you will just have your like ultra high special attack, sweeper, maxed IVs, whatever, with no challenge whatsoever. So the fact that they found a way to use the systems in place of Pokemon and create something that's more of a compelling, strategical, real difficulty, just like it took them a few iterations to get there and a few yeah, concessions, I suppose, when it comes to like, I feel like, Pokemon. It sounds I really feel good, like, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I feel like just talking about how I like the Dynamax Adventures kind of undersells how much I just love the new Wild Area and Crown Tundra as well. And I think I talked about this a little bit last week, but it really does give me a ton of hope for the series future. I, I had a bit of an inkling that this was what Game Freak was going to go for going forward, that they were going to replace like traditional routes with wild areas entirely, or maybe even go fully open world. But I didn't dare like hope, because Sword and Shield's base game, for me, was so disappointing. But the Crown Tundra adds a few things to the wild areas mix that make it seem like a statement of intent for what Game Freak wants to do with their wrap design and their world design going forward. Like, the Crown Tundra has a town. It's silly, it's called Freezington, but what's unique about it is this town, instead of being, like, separated, like, from routes or anything like that, or, like, a loading screen, no, it takes place directly in the Crown Tundra's wild area. You just walk out of the town borders and you're immediately in the wild area, no transition. Oh, that's really fact, cool. I don't think you brought that up last time. Yeah, and that's just such a small thing. But then there's also stuff like there's a, a real sense of verticality in the Crown Tundra's wild area that you just didn't have anywhere else. You didn't really see much of it in the Isle of Armor, but there's like not really a mountain range, I guess, kind of, but there's like an elevation that you go you go towards and you can see all the way down to like this one tree at the bottom of the, of the uh, Crown Tundra. And if you're down at the bottom, you can look up and you can see the other tree that's on the like tallest peak. And I think I talked about this with Bile of Armor, how I feel like they've done a much better job of like transitioning biomes because like i remember my biggest problem with well one of my biggest problems with the base game wild area is that it had separate biomes but it didn't feel like they were really good transition some of the time uh they did a much better job of file of armor and i feel the same way with crown tundra it feels like game freak if they i'm not sure if they've taken criticism to heart because i do feel like this dlc was probably in development during the base game but it feels a lot better. So I see these, this level design, this world design. I see how they've made the wild areas themselves much more interesting, more winding, different elevations, built-in cave networks that actually do require you to <laughs> explore around them. Because it's like, you do have to, like, if you want to find a specific item in them, you have to kind of, like, maneuver around in a way that reminds me of uh, caves from previous Pokemon games. And it's just... My number so, one. We've come a long way the, from cliffs that you can go only one way. That was like yeah. the extent. <laughs> My number one complaint with like Sword and Shield's level design from the get go was that it felt entirely too linear and there was like no exploration. And for me, like 
the thing about Pokemon was having areas out off the beaten path that you could explore, like Soul Cave and Generation 3, or like a bunch of places in Generation 3 now that I think about it. And Sword and Shield didn't really have any of those. And yet, because of <clears throat> the new wild areas and both the DLC packs, it's reintroduced some of that to the game. And if Generation 9 or whatnot can take the framework that these new wild areas have added to the Sword and Shield experience and expand upon them, I feel confident that, at least for me, Generation 9 will be the most excited I am for a new Pokemon game that I have been in an incredibly long time. And this is after I gave Sword and Shield a 6 out of 10. It's an, it's a, it's an amazing heel turn. I'm just so happy that even if you have to pay for a expansion pass, which I understand why people are upset about it, and I can kind of see it too, because now you're paying 90 bucks for one game that I feel like some of this content should have been in the base game at launch. What I'm what I'm going to end up saying in my expansion pass review, and I'll just say it here as well, is that if if this if the alternative was this content never existed in the first place, and Sword and Shield never got the chance to get that expansion, to get that new content, I'd rather that the option to pay for it exists because again, Pokemon X and Y never got that chance. Pokemon X and Y are forever, at this point, going to be probably, for many people, the most disappointing Pokemon games. Sword and Shield, even if you end up not paying for the expansion pass, at least they have that sort of completion. They've had the chance to get just that bit more content, just that bit more flavor to them that X and Y never got. I and I appreciate believe, I can't believe Pokemon also has... This is this, there's... There's a real line you can draw from the early access talk slash continual update talk from before to Pokemon where it had this untapped potential where now we live in a paradigm where they had the opportunity to to once again reach for it and maybe actually yeah. achieve it in some respect. Yeah, and I'm not going to say that Crown Tundra is perfect by any means, but it's compared to the base game and even compared to like even if Sword and Shield wasn't disappointing, I feel like people would have really enjoyed Crown Tundra. It's just the fact that Sword and Shield was such a disappointment for so many people that it really resonates just how good it is. And I'm confident in saying that, of course, if you enjoyed Sword and Shield from the get-go, you're going to like the, the expansion pass. You're probably already playing it or have been playing it. But if you played Sword and Shield or, and were disappointed in it, I know it's a tough sale to like spend 30 bucks on Expansion Pass that you don't know if you're going to like or not. But if you didn't enjoy parts of Sword and Shield for the same reasons that I was disappointed, I feel like you will, you'll be pleasantly surprised at how much the expansions simply improve the game. Just in general, this is probably one of the most positive first sections of this podcast we've had with Hades, Pokemon, and I guess my little Neo section, all being like really well, like enthusiastic on our end. So really cool to see. It's why we're, it's why we're holding this podcast. It's why we contribute to this website, right? It's for those types of experiences. And I'm also okay having a little bit longer of an introductory section because the news slash topical front on this podcast is kind of 
top-heavy. We've got a lot to talk about in terms of new details on Final Fantasy 16, and then a lot of kind of bit news about stuff that's shifting into next year, a few release dates, a couple announcements from the uh, Mini Direct. Um, before we get into the topics, though, I do have two shout-outs that I want to do. One is that we have kind of a feature article on Genshin Impact, which is another one of those games that you can't really judge by its 1.0 release, uh, from Josh Torres, who has basically been the quote-unquote reviewer for this game. But he didn't feel comfortable like doing a scored review on it just because of the nature of this game being supported for hopefully a good deal longer. Um, so instead, he kind of did like his one-month follow-up, why it made such a big splash, his kind of personal thoughts on it as someone who's played a whole bunch of games in the same vein, but on mobile, and now it's here kind of stepping into a bigger audience. So a real cool feature on Genshin from Josh up on the site. And we also have a kind of a smaller review from Danny about uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse, Heart of the Forest. Did I get that right? <laughs> yes. All right. I was, I was, yeah. I was so that's I was... an indie narrative RPG. It's like it's like a visual novel, but it has like actual like stats and RPG um, like role playing in terms of you gain stats for picking certain options, and that might choose, that might determine what other options are available to you later. So it's sort of like RPG infused into a VN and she liked it. Yeah. So she doesn't have much, uh, as far as I know, history or, you know, ties to that world of darkness, white wolf, you know, tabletop IPs, vampire, the masquerade, werewolf, the apocalypse, all that stuff, but she still enjoyed it for what it was. So kind of just a cool different take on a VN type game slash RPG. So just an interesting little release that we don't want to let fly under the radar. So we have a review up for that. And then, and to the biggest topic of the week, we knew that at some point this month, we would finally get more details on Final Fantasy 16 through like website update, detailing characters, locations, you know, ideas, themes. And we finally got that here and we can talk about it on the last day of the month, October 31st. Uh, we now have a name for the protagonist. It is... Clive. <laughs> yes, Clive Rosefield. So we originally only had the uh, announcement trailer for this game where he revealed himself or he referred to himself as Joshua's shield. Joshua clearly being the younger boy protagonist who is somehow uh, related to the icon Phoenix. Or sorry, not Phoenix, Ifrit. Phoenix is another one, Ifrit. Um, so we now learn that the main character is Clive Rosefield. The, the brother's name is Joshua Rosefield. And then the third character is the, uh, the female character is Jill Warwick, who is also a childhood friend of the Rosefield brothers. Um, and let I guess let's just go through each of these characters like in turn and, and discuss what we think about them so far. Um, so Clive Rosefield, he is, uh, we see him in the initial trailer, both young and older. So we, we do know that there is some sort of time skip or at least two time periods presented. Um, I guess I'll just read this, why not? The firstborn son of the Archduke of Rosaria, though all expected him to inherit the, to inherit the Phoenix's flames and awaken its dominant, instead chose his younger brother, Joshua. So I did have it right, Phoenix is tied to Joshua. So in search of a role of his own, Clive dedicated himself to mastering the blade. His practice pays off when just at 15 years of age, he wins a tournament and is dubbed the first shield of Rosaria, tasked to guard Phoenix and blessed with the ability to wield part of his fire. So that's why he calls himself Joshua's shield. 
Alas, Clive's promising career ends in tragedy at the hands of mysterious dark icon Ifrit, setting him on a dangerous road to revenge. So I think that this sounds really cool. This weird like tie-in yeah. with the instead of having these summons just kind of like n- not really integrated into the story, they're just it kind of reminds me of like in Final Fantasy XII. They have uh, what do they call them in that game? Idolins. Um, but they're not really, they're just kind of like found away and tucked away and you just kind of gather them and you collect them because it's a JRPG Final Fantasy game, you have them. And then even in Final Fantasy X, where they are a key part of the story, um, it has like a different take to it. It feels more just like they're all relegated to their temples and you, you collect them and then eventually your summoner uses them. They're just for for your one, they're tied to that one character, Yuna in that case. Where here we see them deeply integrated, both Ifrit and Phoenix into the two main protagonists. So I think this sounds on paper pretty, pretty compelling. So I am really interested in this game. I'm I've, it's been a while since we've had, I know some people are down on like the more medieval. It's not really medieval, but like medieval aspect to it. Less like fantasy. Yeah. But I feel like it's been a long time since we've had a final fantasy like that. That's not a multiplayer game, like an MMO. And I'm just sort of interested in that take because we have, you know, we've had Kingdom Hearts, we have Final Fantasy VII, we had Final Fantasy XV, and it's just like, this is a little bit, you know, less fantasy than that, it feels like, or less, maybe like less anime, I guess, Um, because it's still fantasy, but it's more like a high fantasy type of setting instead. But it's the type of, I've, I've never really been that big on like character biographies or things like that. I kind of want to experience that as it is presented to me in the game itself, you know? Um, so I've, I've kind of already decided, yes, I'm interested interested in this game and I will play it. So I don't really have a need to like read up on like all the pre-release I, stuff. I, and I'm not trying to even avoid spoilers. I just like, I just want, I just want to like see it, how, how it's explained to me in context, like when it eventually releases. That's just sort of my approach to it. I agree with you in some respect, but I also like this is the first Final Fantasy cast slash protagonist that have been talked about since Lightning and Noctis were announced like in the same window 13, 14 years ago, however long that was. Yeah, like 2006. So, so I'm okay with getting just the basic bio. Like once they start talking, like really going into the weeds. I'll probably check out, but this very first stuff, I'm totally okay kind of going over with maybe not a fine tooth comb, but at least digging into it a little bit. So Joshua Rosefield, uh, the the one named character that we did know about from the initial trailer, the young boy, um, the second son of the Archduke of Rosaria and Clive's younger brother by five years, Joshua awoke as the dominant of Phoenix soon after his birth. Despite his noble upbringing, he treats all of his father's subjects with warmth and affection, none more so than Clive, who he deeply admires. Joshua often laments that it was he that, that that it was he, the frail and bookish younger son, who was granted command of the Firebird's flames and not his stronger, braver brother. While Clive will gladly throw himself in any danger, Joshua quails at the sight of a carrot on his dinner plate. I like kind of the, the <laughs> I kind of like the imagery there. But carrots become the least of his concern when he too is swept into the tragic events. So I guess it'll be interesting to see like how this character grows through the game. If he starts as kind of this meek, sheepish, cowardly character and kind of grow, grows into his role as like a deuterologist. Is that the right? Is that the, am I pronouncing that right? As like a second main character. So um, I know some people kind of 
wince or cringe at the idea of like children characters or younger ones. Uh, I think that they can be done well if they definitely. Well, there's going to be a time skip, so you know, or it feels like there's going to be one. Like, like, and I know, like Jill, Jill is apparently like twelve years old, but there's going to be a time skip where you know Jill will probably be in her late teens, early twenties. Same with Joshua and. You know, Clive will maybe be in his mid twenties if he's a little older. You know, so you guys really think that Josh was making out with this like prologue sort of section? <laughs> like he, it kind of seems to me like he he's totally dead. J- just oh, the, you, the, you, do you think he's done? Huh? How the way they're calling it like tragic and like the the idea that he is the embodiment or he's with the the spirit of Phoenix and like he's not you know, comfortable with his power and like even the trailer where he's covered in blood and there's just all these things after him. Like my, my mind is he jumps to do, yeah, he's dead. <laughs> but the thing is, is, I guess that's, there's a possibility there, but the way that this is worded for the, they still stick with this imagery here. Carrots become the least of his concern when he too is swept up in the tragic events. I suppose that means like, yeah, because he's dead. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see like, if he's kind of like playing, uh, captive for a good chunk of the game like he is the he is the uh what's the word the motivation for the plot initiating like he is the princess peach yes joshua is princess peach i hope i think there's nothing really cool one of my most compelling like archetypes of character is like this character who was initially weak and frail and then by the end of the game they're just like this badass like or they end up saving if if joshua in like a very pivotal moment in the game steps up and saves uh clive's life or something like that like i'll, I'll probably pump my fist if it's done well sort of thing like those, those i live for those sorts of moments so i hope he doesn't die but we'll see and then adam introduced the last character jill um well considering even if he does die he's like hey guess what he's he's uh the phoenix i wonder what that could mean Oh yeah, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I didn't think of it like that. So for Jill Warwick, born in the fallen Northern Territories, Jill was taken from her homeland at a tender age to become a ward of Rosaria, which again is where Clive and Joshua are from. Securing peace between the two warring nations, the Archduke insisted that she be raised alongside his sons, and now at 12 years of age, she is much a part of the Rosefield household as Clive and Joshua. Ever kind, gracious, and unassuming, Jill has become a trusted confidant to the brothers. So on on paper, this sounds kind of dull. Like she's just kind of a bargaining chip. I hope she kind of grows into like her own person. But there's really not a lot to go on here, basically, other than like she's the adopted sister, which we've seen a lot of games use the adopted siblings in different ways. Uh, so it's kind of a bland. I, I wish there was something more to latch on to here for Jill. But unfortunately, unless I'm just like missing something, and it just really isn't. So I hope I hope she ends up doing something really compelling or really being a key part of the story. Because right now she seems just kind of like uh, a tool to t- a tool to basically illustrate that the nations are at war, sort of thing. Or at war it's at especially war. I know Final Fantasy VII did okay with its female characters, but like Final Fantasy XV did not. So it's just kind of like hopefully <laughs> she does the female characters do something of importance or of significance here. And also, this might sound very specific or particular, but I hope, or I won't say I hope, but I really don't have anything on the front of my mind saying that I hope that there is a, um, like a love interest sort of thing here, because one of my favorite sorts of uh, 
relationships between two characters is when it's like this platonic, yes, but very this like mutual respect for two people who are both very capable. And one of my favorite examples of that is like Yuri and Estelle from Tales of Vesperia. I've been able to bring up Vesperia twice in this podcast somehow. I don't know why. Uh, but I don't I'm also think like the sort of relationship where it's like we have complete and utter faith and confidence in each other, but it's not romantic sort of thing. And it just seems like, oh, th this is the primary protagonist male and the primary female protagonist. They're going to end up together. I'm like, well, maybe. I mean, I'm not saying they can't do that well, potentially. Uh, but I just don't think it's a requirement. And if they end up doing something a little bit more different, a little bit more you know, unique, I'll be totally on board. I just hope she ends up being in a... Let's, let's clear the first hurdle first. I hope that she ends up being a very important character throughout the whole game and isn't like killed off to be motivation or like captured or damsel in distress on her end. So I hope, I hope they give us more details to go on for her. Cause right now it's just kind of like, she is the third main character. We hope she's important. That's kind of it. And then I'm not going to go into like reading all the different nations, but they talk about um, the, uh, the six different uh, regions, factions of the world, of course, starting with Rosaria, which is, I guess, kind of, the, the one we're supposed to feel at least in, in the initially uh sympathetic towards because that's where the rosefield brothers are from etc and the royalty of the archduke um then they also talk about uh the holy empire of sambrek uh kingdom of Waloed, the dalmechian republic iron kingdom and the crystalline dominion i'm not going to go into the weeds of those but just in general painting a very wide spread out diverse different it's cool to have this kind of in place to show that hopefully we end up seeing a bunch of different sort of different cultures, different, you know, maybe religions, maybe uh, different sort of aspirations for these countries. Uh, some are probably more mercantile and some are more, you know, imperial. Um, one thing that I also thought was kind of interesting is that along with the key art that was provided in this uh, release, we got like different flags or different like crests for each of these four countries or sorry, six countries. I don't know why I said four. Um, this might be sound a bit weird, but this reminds me actually of all things of Greedfall. So Greedfall had like five different factions and each of those had like a very specific sort of crest and color assigned to them. So what that meant was whenever you came across an outpost or even like gear, it would have one of these icons, these basically a, a, a denotation basically saying this belongs to X or Y. And whether or not you are allied with them would determine... Uh, certain things about questing or whether they would you know like your character or not or even if you wore a set of gear that was you know all aligned to a specific faction you would basically disguise yourself as one of them even if you weren't aligned with them and i'm not saying that this game will treat these countries like factions but i think it's cool that they're trying to very deliberately like separate each of these as being having clearly identifiable icons and coloring so it might end up being a pretty significant part of the game to have these six competing countries. So that's just my initial speculation is that the country layout, politics, whatever you want to call it, will end up being really important. At least I hope that's where they end up with this. Yeah, that, that would be a cool change, especially uh, compared to, I saw Alex mention it on Twitter about the map, people thinking that there might be like a big free roaming connection between it and people saying that about Final Fantasy 15. Yeah, especially in Final Fantasy 15 where you have like you kind of barely go into what is it Altissa? And... Is that 
God, it's been a while since I've played 15. Is that where you go like in on the boat? Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. And like you have this really cool CG and it seems like this really vast, cool place. And then you're just kind of playing like a very small sliver of it. Yeah. And then you've got a couple other towns that you go to, like where, um, where you, what place is it that you stomp around with Iris? Uh, it just ends up being like not a whole lot. Uh, I I really do like Final Fantasy XV's open world. I do think there's something about kind of that almost like Americana Western expansion, like highway stuff. Like uh, some people find that really hokey or silly or not fitting a Final Fantasy, but I kind of enjoyed it. But in terms of different groups of people at play on the world, there really wasn't a whole lot. Like you never really felt like this person belongs to this kingdom or this person belongs to this faction. It just, it, it, it just never really manifested in that way. So this game really like has that where you have like maybe a refugee camp here or like two different countries at war here, a neutral faction, a neutral party there. I, I'm all for like the more politically oriented Final Fantasy XII uh, sort of um, conflict with larger with larger countries at play. And you obviously these characters are born, born uh, in Rosaria, but does that mean they're going to stay allied to them all the way through? Maybe, maybe not. So this is. Um... What this sort of reminds me of in a way is Suikoden. Because Suikoden is also a game, it's an RPG series that has a lot of focus on like competing empires and kingdoms. Like for example, the first game you start out in like the Scarlet Moon Kingdom, but then you do eventually um, learn that it's not like, even though your protagonist is a relatable and sympathetic protagonist, the, the empire is not. And then there's another empire in the game called like the Holy, it's like the Holy Kingdom of Harmonia, I believe it's called. And there's some other ones as well. And that's an interconnected series with more than one entry. But in brief, Suikoden does a pretty good job kind of balancing this sort of political conflicts, like this more historical political um, side of the story with like the more personal story of the characters that that are involved. And I think it does a really good balance of things there, especially the first two games. So if Final Fantasy could do something like that, and perhaps be maybe even more successful at it than like Final Fantasy XII did, which I think maybe was good with the political side, but maybe not so much on the character side. That's that's something I'd be up for. So Adam, maybe you know this, because I'm only reading uh, what Alex Donaldson posted. So first of all, one thing that I didn't mention as kind of a premise of this world setting is that each nation is centered around a mother crystal, basically a giant, you know, aether forming uh, magical item artifact that serves as kind of like the anchor of each kingdom and kind of like their, their, what's the word, their right to power, their right to rule this land or whatever. And each of them is called like Drake's breath or uh, Drake's head. Um, but in like some of these descriptions for some of these countries, it talks about the dominant of different icons but they redact them. Like for instance, in the Holy Empire of Sambrek, the dominant of redacted serves as the empire's champion. Like, is that how it appears on the website as well? Like it literally like holds back, like who has what dominant? I didn't check. I'm not sure. Uh, go ahead and look that up. Uh, I'm just reading through that. So that yeah, the... shows up. So yeah, also for the kingdom of Wallowed, it says, Wallowed, Wallowed. Um, it says again, the current the current ruler of the realm, the dominant or redacted, has uh, succeeded in quelling the rebellions. Uh, so for some of these, they're really kind of holding it close to their chest because I don't know. Maybe the does 
that's a good question. Like, are we just not supposed to know as the players or is it like it's a mystery even to the people in universe, like which icon they have? Some of them, it does tell us, like, for instance, the Dalmakian Republic says the dominant of Titan. Oh, yeah, exactly. it's, it's literally like a spoiler bar that you can't unclick um, oh, that's cool. on the website. So, so I mean, some... there are probably just other other common Final Fantasy uh, Eidolon slash summons, right? Yes, but still, like, um, it might be interesting to, like, you run into one of them and, like, let's say it causes carnage in the battlefield and we don't know which nation it belongs to. But some of them it does tell us, like Dalmachian tells us their dominant is Titan, things like that. So I think this is a cool premise. Hopefully we get more cool stuff about Jill. I think she's kind of like the weakest point of what's been shown so far. And obviously, hopefully we'll get more details about whether or not there is any sort of like party-based mechanics. Because there's some people that, that are thinking it'll be single player only or it'll be single player with AI allies, uh, which kind of is what Final Fantasy XV when I say single player, I mean single protagonist. Um, that's kind of what Final Fantasy XV was for most of the time until one of the post-release updates allowed you to temporarily play as the like the the bros in combat, even though it would shift you back to Noctis at the end. So not a lot of gameplay rev revelations here, but just some cool, uh, interesting insight into the characters, the premise, the the world setting and things like that. And I'm with you, Adam, that I don't like to get too into the weeds of this, but for initial for an initial look at the game where all we've had is like a five-minute trailer, I'm okay digging into it, at least at the outset here. And there were some rumors and speculation that this might has been in development a long time and might show up next year. I think it was like the official PlayStation magazine that like stated like 2021, but then they kind of doubled back and they're like, actually, we don't know for certain. <laughs> like that was just a placeholder. That was a guess. So it'd be interesting to see how, like like we mentioned, the other two games, 13 and then what eventually became 15, we ended up waiting a long time for. So it'd be interesting to see if this one has a quicker turnaround, if they've got like a different sort of... Uh, marketing cycle in mind that they've kind of held this in secret for such a long time that they can kind of get it out quickly past its revelation rather than announcing it when it's still fairly incubating i would love that like a like a fallout 4 yeah that was that was that wasn't the one i was thinking of that's a good that's a good uh, comparison or a good point of uh, reference for a, a very quick release and of course nintendo has done that you know this year they've done it twice with um origami king and uh hyrule warriors Final Fantasy 16, I would think, is like on a bigger scale than those games, but we have seen it done to some success in terms of really quickly like ramping up the hype cycle or whatever you want to call it. So that's the, really the big main major piece of news for this. Week. Um, just an aside, like even Sony's been doing that. Like um, Demon Souls remake was just revealed like only a few months before it's coming out, and like. Spider-Man Miles Morales is a similar situation. Even like Ratchet and Clank is supposed to be a launch window title. So yeah, yeah. So maybe it's, maybe it's more uh, more frequent, more common than I'm giving it credit for. But it's just that Square Enix specifically has had a little bit of you know long gestation periods, whatever you want to call it. So history oh, with this, yeah, yeah. In the Hall Three, yeah, yeah. We'll see. <laughs> okay. All right, so next up is a delay. And there's a couple of these on the on the list today. So first up, the biggest one probably is Cyberpunk 2077. We can't get away from talking about this game, at least a little bit on each podcast. Uh, was delayed 21 days to December 10th. So 
that that is what it is. Uh, and it's interesting because a few games had kind of moved themselves out of the November window in like an unstated uh, avoidance of landing alongside Cyberpunk. So now it's sitting squarely in the middle of December. Um, of course, it kind of sucks because a three-week delay when the studio was already in crunch just means that, that at a minimum, they're going to be crunching for three weeks longer. And not that it ends when they release because they have post-launch bugs and day one patches and things like that. Uh, but we also do kind of get to use this now as kind of like a cautionary tale for how much importance to place into the words of a game going gold. Because clearly that was, I think the last time we brought this up in a podcast or maybe two podcasts ago was the gold go, going gold announcement, which I guess had a lot more weight back when games were not as digital and as frequently updated through patches as they are now. So yeah, I guess we're just uh, going to be waiting three weeks longer for Cyberpunk. Just sucks. Like, it's it funny sucks. how it went gold, and now it's like, oh, never mind. You didn't hear that. And the thing sucks. is, go ahead, George. It, for like, for everyone involved, it sucks. Like, it sucks for people who are excited to play it, people who are going to cover it, uh, like the developers most of all, who apparently didn't even know about it until like it was announced. Like, it's just. For for something that's so in the limelight, like I sometimes wonder, like stop making bad moves when everyone can yeah, see you. Yeah, and and then you, like you can sort of get away with it, like because they're not covered so much. Like, but Cyberpunk especially, I would, I if I were them, I would be trying so hard to be as good and diligent as possible. And it just seems like, you know, maybe the press is getting. It's also worth noting, and this is something I feel like people are missing is. Yeah, pe um, developers were moving their games out of November, potentially to December and a little bit later, because they wanted to get out of the way of Cyberpunk. And it wasn't just then. Like, there's been, like, other games. Like, when it was originally going to come out in April, some developers pushed their games back from April. And so I'm not sure if any specific game has done this, but I wouldn't be shocked if there was a game that was originally going to come out in April that pushed itself back to... November to November and then had to push itself back again and now they're just screwed because they've been trying their best to stay out of the way of cyberpunk but that release date constantly changing on CD Projekt Red's end is also having an adverse impact on other developers that just want to distance themselves from it because they know that like whenever cyberpunk comes out like at this point it's clear no matter what it's going to be a massive success like financially so yeah, yeah, and then, uh, so this is the third delay. First, it was from, I hope I get this right, April to December. Sorry, I don't know why I said December. April, April to September. September, then to November, and then to December. So, yeah, and uh, the, there's, there's a few other little footnotes here. So it's now past the cutoff for the Game Awards, if that's something you care about. For our site... It's basically, I don't think we've made a clear decision yet, but it probably will be too late in the year for us to do justice for our coverage. None of, of us will have played it. We probably, like, none of us will have played it enough to really have any, like, significant. Yeah, so the four yeah. of us don't have say on this, but my guess would be that it's not going to be covered this year. It'll have to go into next year. And better news, we do have a new game announced from the Nintendo Switch Mini Partner Direct, and that is Story of Seasons, Pioneers of Olive Town, which is releasing next year on March 23rd in North America and March 26th in Europe. 
So I am not a Story of Seasons Harvest Moon fan, but uh, I know a lot of people who really are. And we've covered a few of those games, like Summer of Mara, and a few and uh, a few of those like farm simi type games up on the on the site. They're kind of one of those tangential coverage points that kind of got grandfathered in at some point on our site. Uh, I don't know if anyone here has a more personal affinity to classic Harvest Moon, or if that's more of a, a black kite thing. Well, I mean, I did do impressions for the PC version of uh, Friends of Mineral Town. Um, I liked Harvest Moon when I was younger. It, this, to me, looks more interesting than the uh, Friends of Mineral Town uh, remake. Uh, if nothing else, than for the fact that the art style seems a bit more visually appealing to me. Uh, nothing else really to say about it, because, well, I mean, Still so much of the Harvest yeah, so much of the Story of Seasons like series and whatnot is very, very similar. So, uh, well, until well, we get until we get more information about it and like what it's specifically changing, it's kind of hard to make any statement one way or the other. I personally am, am much more excited for the other farming simulator that uh, Marvelous is publishing next year. Segways. Uh, go ahead and take it away. I think you're talking about Rune Factory Five. Yeah, I ah, crap, missed the uh, podcast document. Here we go. So yeah, uh, hasn't gotten a release date for the West yet, but, and probably because it's most likely going to be later next year for North American Europe, but, um, so Marvelous Japan announced that Rune Factory 5 will be releasing on May 20th in Japan. So that is... Um, Sooner than I was expecting. Uh, I do remember when they first showed off like actual gameplay for Rune Factory Five. It looks a bit more. It looks a bit more like the previous console versions of Rune Factory, like uh, I, like Tides of Destiny and whatever the uh, yeah Frontier. That that's the other one. So um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays because I do know that uh, quite a few people were more of a fan of the DS and 3DS entries. Um, so it'll be interesting because especially Rune Factory 4 with the special edition, I feel like most people that like uh, Rune Factory can agree that either Rune Factory 3 or 4 are the best in the series. So Rune Factory 5 has a lot to live up to. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that shakes out. And that was announced in the specifically in the Japanese version of the Mini Direct. So... No announcements made for the West, but now that we have a first landing point in Japan, they kind of... I, I almost want to say that this was actually announced at a previous partner direct. Like, when they showed it off uh, before, I want to say that the release date, or at least the release window, was uh, mentioned on the Japanese side, because I remember watching the Japanese version of that one direct. Huh. So, this might not actually be new, we just might not have covered it previously. So yeah, uh, whether or not it's new, uh, a new specific date or just a reconfirmation, May 20th of next year in Japan, hopefully shortly soon after for worldwide. But yep, so I would assume to... I would assume probably closer to the fall for the West. Yeah. So we got Rune Factory 5 and a new Story of Seasons coming next year for your farm sim needs. A couple other release dates for early next year. Um, this was one that was originally slated for this year, but was announced with a delay. Um, Bravely Default 2 will now release on February 26th of 2021. Uh, it did not have a, uh, a specific date for 2020. It was just slated for this year, but 
it was kind of, I think the writing was on the wall that we didn't really feel like it was going to land this year because they had been really quiet about it. They also did release a video talking about some of the changes and tweaks made based on feedback to the demo. Because remember that demo from half a year ago? feels like a long time ago uh, from Bravely Default 2. So uh, we've seen this in a few places where they've taken the demo feedback and really kind of taken it to heart. Uh, so... Did we see it like here? The original the Neo and Neo 2 did that, like, I, um, several times, in fact, because Neo 1 had the alpha, then the beta, then the last chance. And I think Neo 2 had a very similar situation because it definitely had an alpha and a beta. And, and also, and, the, uh, um, Octopath. And then, yeah, Octopath from these, yeah, from, uh, well, I guess different developers, same developer, publisher. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So, uh, Bravely Default 2 will probably be one of the biggest RPGs of early next year for us. I know some people who are really big fans of that series. I think the new art style looks unique and distinct and different. I kind of like it. I know some people think it looks... I uh, do not like the new art style. I feel like know. I feel like it should have gone for a more cel-shaded um, yeah, aesthetic, more akin to the uh, games on the 3DS. I feel like the way the lighting works with the models puts in an uncanny valley, and I just really don't like it. <laughs> I really don't like it. Also, part of the voice acting in the trailer just didn't sound great to me, and considering that, like, Square Enix had a bit of an issue just earlier, like, Trials of Mana was earlier this year, wasn't it? Yep. God. Wow. The, considering the dub for that one had some issues, I'm kind of hesitant. Hopefully, the Western version of Bravely Default 2 will have a Japanese voice track, because uh, just going off of what I could hear from the trailer, I definitely think I would prefer to go with that one this time. Uh, I'll still probably play it. I still need to finish Bravely Default 1. I never actually finished all the uh, loops, but uh, yeah, um, I'm sure it'll be good. I'm sure it'll be a decent RPG. I'm just not sure how to feel about it quite yet, and the art style is definitely not helping. I've never actually played a really default game. So it's I worth really mentioning want... that the developer for the new game is Claytech Works, who previously did like the mobile game, Bravely Default Fairies Effect. So it's like not the same studio that made the first two Bravely Default games. So interesting. Yeah. And we also have an announcement for another <laughs> game that I actually reviewed early last year. I think it was literally last year. Outward. Which was a game that I thought was, it was a kind of an indie-ish, soul survival-ish like game. Hard to kind of put in a sync box um, that released uh, on PC last year. And then, well, actually, I guess it's on PS4 and Xbox One as well. They originally uh, launched a first DLC called the Soroborians, which I never actually got around to. And here they've announced a second one releasing in December. Let's see, December, I guess, they, yeah, they didn't specify the date. They just said December, called Outward the Three Brothers which basically uh, adds an entirely new region. Um, and then it also adds like a new faction to the game. So I'm kind of like at a point where I played through Outward originally. It's a very fun two-player co-op game. If you've ever wanted to play like a Souls-like-ish game, but not have to rely on this weird like phantom mechanic where you're summoning help, just more pure two players playing through the game together in co-op in lockstep. That's what Outward allows you to do. Um, so that's, I actually played through it with a friend initially and we had a really good time. It's one of those games where it's like, and I think a lot of games are like this, where on its own as a single player game, it'd probably be kind of frustrating to play, trying to have to 
do all the item management yourself, fight everything yourself. Because uh, it does have some of those, it's supposed to be sort of like oppressive, not in the terms of like this game, the way Souls games typically are with harsh combat and like level design, but also with like survival mechanics, especially like with weather. And you have to, you have to wear specific gear that's suited for the desert or warmer gear if you're in a winter snowy area, things like that. Um, so it has basically that wrapped into its design as well. So I might, I don't know how many um, more or how much more post-game releases they're, they're planning for Outward, but I could easily see myself revisiting this game. Maybe if I can drag one of you guys along, Adam, uh, once, all the, once it's all fully updated and has all these new additions to it, because it's been kind of a theme of the, uh, of the episode where a game, once it's, got, once it's got some time to be polished and add what was missing and just kind of have the, the rough edges buffed out, that they can be significantly better than when they first released or when they're first playable. So I already had a reasonably high opinion of this game back when it did release. So I'm e I'm eager at some point, if I can squeeze it in maybe next year, to, to revisit Outward with, with all this stuff uh, in mind. Here's another just quick uh, release date news. Haven, which is the indie game from the Game Bakers, which we've covered, I think we, I think we did a preview on this uh, title before. Um, is releasing on December 3rd for basically everything. PC, PlayStation 5, Xbox S, sorry, Xbox One, and Xbox Series S and X, and also on Game Pass. So this game is... It's actually kind of weird. What's actually kind of weird is the PS5 version is coming out this year, but the PS4 version is coming out next year. And so is the Switch version. Oh, okay. So December 3rd is for mostly everything, but not PS4 and Switch. But it's on Game Pass for series and PC, I assume. So this game, it seems like just kind of a very simple idea. You play as a dual protagonist, you know, a romantic pair um, in kind of a JRPG style, open world sort of artsy little, it looks kind of like a very simple premise. Uh, it seems like a, like a fun little weekend game. Uh, I'm interested in trying it. It just, it just seems something a bit different. It, it was also on some of the Steam uh, like festival preview demos, but I never actually got a time to like boot it up. So, I, again, it's kind of late in the year, so I don't know if it'll be able to get squeezed in to actually talk about it. But we've we've seen us like I've personally even on the site publish a few things where I kind of spend the early part of next year kind of playing these little smaller interesting games that I just can't really make time for in the winter season of the year they release. So that'll be true for uh, Outward, and that'll be true for Haven. So two little smaller titles just to keep an eye on. Another release date for a bigger title, World of Warcraft Shadowlands. It was originally delayed. We talked about the delay announcement uh, a few weeks ago. It is launching on November 23rd. I don't know if anyone here uh, keeps in, you know, in line with World of Warcraft. I think it's just we've had a couple contributors on the site previously that were really up to date on that game. I don't think any of any of us on the current staff really are, but MMO I expansions. Briefly considered giving WoW a shot since I'm caught up with 14, but ever, but I keep telling myself, no, that's a horrible idea, and so I haven't done it yet. That's exactly what I tell myself with Final Fantasy 14. Uh, so I guess this World of Warcraft is kind of a known commodity. You're either really on board for this or you just haven't really played World of Warcraft. I feel that's kind of at least my impression. Um, so... November 
what did I say? 23rd for Shadowlands. I don't know if we're planning on covering it, mainly just because it's kind of got that weird high barrier of entry thing. I, I know WoW nowadays has these really, you know, convenient level boosts and get the level cap quickly and play most everything solo, like so many theme park MMOs do yeah. these days. From what I understand, unlike 14, where it's kind of almost expected for players to get caught up on the story, that's not really expected in WoW. And most of the old content isn't touched as much as like upper MMOs. So just getting a level skip and like going from there would probably be the way to go or something. Maybe this is too simple, but the way I've always kind of think of it, never having played any of them, is that obviously World uh, sorry, Final Fantasy fourteen has this front to end story that you have to like get caught up. Like it it's a through line through it. And then I know ESO, Elder Scrolls Online, each of its expansions are like standalone. Like it's meant to be where you can kind of they thread off from a central point where it's not a singular story, which is kind of, I think, kind of the ethos of that series. And then World of Warcraft kind of seems like it splits the difference where it's got a through line through it, but it's also knows that in order to get more people on board, it doesn't want to have all eight or whatever previous. No, this is the eighth one. All seven previous expansions as like requirements in order to understand and get into this one. Man, my my goal is that for next generation, when we start seeing um, some newer MMOs release, which I know MMOs are kind of like a, I don't know, dying genre is the right word, but a more niche than they used to be, more more specialized. If like the, the Amazon's Lord of the Rings MMO ever comes out, or um, New World, or what's the one that was also announced uh, this week? We also got, I don't think I actually put it in the podcast doc. Adam, what is it? Uh, Elion. Elion? <laughs> yeah. yeah it, I want to, I want to at some point, maybe in like two years, have an MMO that I can actually talk about. Like, I, Fantasy Star doesn't really count. Maybe New Genesis will count. So, so I can actually cause these series, these 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 massive games. Obviously, it's part of their name. It feels like are, Brian is down to try any MMO that doesn't rhyme with uh, Final. Well, doesn't start with Final <laughs> Fantasy. It's not. It's not that I'm avoiding Final Fantasy. It's just that I want to avoid a known commodity. I want. To, I want to be something. I want to be there with something when the gate opens. If that makes sense. Yeah, wanna, like I'm really excited to try New Genesis once that finally hits, and I need to get back to playing. Uh, PSO too, because there's just something about, and the the most recent game that I've done this with is Guild Wars, as it is, uh, where you learn alongside the game and you you grow alongside with it, as hokey as that might sound, rather than going into a game that's so well established like World of Warcraft or Final Fantasy or even ESO, where it's like you can find oodles and gobs and encyclopedias of information where it's like these are the best builds this is how you play the game efficiently this is the best items this is the way you should play the game this is how you tank this is how you dps this is how you whatever or i want to play a game where none of that is established where everyone is you know guppies like that's kind of what i want so that's kind of why i keep looking at games like new world and i'm eager to get into them but or ashes of a creation is another one that i kind of keep my eyes on so I don't know if Shadowlands will make it into our coverage just simply because we don't have the bandwidth to have it covered. We'll see. Maybe we can take a pitch for it. I'm not certain. And let's see. Last note that I have on the podcast, Doc, is here's one that maybe James can talk about a bit, is that we have announcement of an Asian release 
for Trails of Cold Steel 1 and 2 and the two crossbow games on Nintendo Switch in 2021. So basically making the jump from the handheld of the previous generation Vita to the Switch. So I think this feels really like a perfect fit for them. I don't know if you've got any more further insight on those. Uh, it would be uh, within... I'm not sure if like technically like Xe would own the uh, rights to uh, doing Cold Steel 1 and 2 on Switch. Because, I don't know, but regardless, I feel like it's inevitable that these, uh, at least Cold Steel's uh, Switch versions are going to come over just because a translation exists and I and a company will want to capitalize on that, whether it would be um, Exceed if they somehow own the license for 1 and 2 in general still, or if uh, NIS America can uh, get the license for 1 and 2 on Switch. It's inevitable crossbell. At least it makes it seem more likely that they will eventually get localized because now it, um, NIS America wouldn't have to put in their own money to finance a port for Switch because now one already exists. So overall a good thing, and I do think that eventually these will probably come over. It's just a matter of time, but yeah. I mean, we saw that with the, uh, the PS4 releases. So I agree with you, even though that's... Wait, was that also Exceed? That was Exceed. Of the, the Kai releases? Yeah, for Cold Steel 1 and 2. Yeah. Yeah, the way it worked, and this was actually a point of contention, like, uh, so Falcom went to Exceed themselves after Exceed knew that they lost the bidding war for Cold Steel 3 and offered them Cold Steel 1 and 2 for PS4. So... Of course, they took it because it was basically free money for them. But I, I understand that they their already kind of strained relationship with Falcom was strained a bit further with that. So. It's kind of like they're they're only going to be able to go as far as Falcom permits them to. It seems like. Yeah, but, yeah, but um, we're, yeah, we're still basically in the same boat we've been in, where it's like I wonder if Crossbell will ever get localized, or otherwise we're just going to rely on those fan translations. The fan translations are good, or at least Zero's fan translation is good. Again, I'm very, very biased in saying that. I am mutuals with many of the people that are on that translation project, and I did do testing for some testing for the translation for Zero. So again, obviously I'm biased, but the translation for Zero is legitimately good. And they are that same team is working on translation for Al or Azure, however you want to say it or weave or not but um yeah so obviously not everyone's going to be playing on pc and especially with cold steel one through four being available on ps4 some people clearly want to play this the series on um ps4 ps5 going forward and that's a valid take but um uh i can speak from experience that zero no kiseki or trails from zero will run on basically any computer from like the last decade so there's not really a huge excuse not to at least give it a shot so part of part of yeah. this satisfies like my my stupid brain because like i've seen some people when i remember when trails of cold steel 3 first came out on switch um there's certain people that really uh they kind of see that really as a vita successor so they lined up their trails in the sky their duology and then like Cold Steel 1 and 2 on Vita, and then like they had the Switch box next to them for the Cold Steel 3. Like that, I don't like that. That's 
that doesn't fit the pattern. So it'll be kind of it'll be interesting well, to kind of have like the Cold Steel series yeah, like dually available on Vita or Switch, at least one and two. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely one of those people that agreed that yeah, it actually does make a lot of sense that Cold Steel three would only be on would be on Switch and not one and two. Because again, I played Cold Steel one and two on Vita, so. Yeah, and I do consider the Switch, especially the Switch Lite, a bit of a uh, Vita successor in my eyes, especially with how many uh, visual novels are now hitting the system and RPG, JRPGs and whatnot. Yeah, really, the biggest reason to consider the Switch a Vita successor in my eyes is just how much support it gets from Idea Factory. So, but yeah. That's, that's the true metric right there. Yeah. So we also but, have um, a few other... Oh, that, I was kind of wrapping up. Did any other closing Yeah, I'm done. Yeah. No, no problem. So there, we also had a few like other just trailers released this week, but I don't know if any of them were really worth a specific call out. We got like a great sword video for Monster Hunter Rise. We got some trailer for Immortals Phoenix Rising, which was releasing in early December. Um, this guy is six. Also, obviously, like five minutes of gameplay from Demon Souls, which out of these trailers is probably like the biggest one, just because people are making like comparison videos about how how it looked on PS3 and now how it looks on PS5. So I don't know if there's any like particular aspect of any of those four games, Immortals, Monster Hunter Rise, Demon's Souls, or Disgaea, anyone wants to close out necessarily, on? Nothing necessarily about the trailer for Demon's Souls, but uh, there's been a bit of a discussion about an interview that Bluepoint um, gave about Demon's Souls in regards to why it's not going to have difficulty options. And... Definitely has caused a bit of a stir on Twitter and a few other uh, uh, forums, uh, mostly because they, I'm not sure who it was specifically, but some, like a representative basically said that Demon Souls Remake will not include a uh, difficulty select, nor should it, which is uh, definitely provocative language. Now, Difficulty options in games and the discourse around them is always tough for a number of reasons. One, obviously, accessibility is very important. You want everyone to be able to at least play a game or have the option of playing a game. Granted, in some cases, there are certain games that it's really hard to make that like um, concession for. Uh, specifically, like, and obviously, not every game it's going to be playable for somebody that's like blind or something or stuff like that. But uh... I'm just trying to think like I, I am one of the people that definitely agree that the difficulty, the challenge and the, the, the joy of overcoming those is inherent and integral and core to this series. Yeah. But the but argument I'm also, but then like... you can also flip it around and say, well, for somebody that, as a physical disability or even like a neurological disability to a certain extent, what might be one difficulty for the average gamer or player is going to be very different for them. And the idea of accessibility options is to level the playing field. It's not for people that are necessarily going to play the game normally. It's for everyone else that wants to have an equivalent experience when they otherwise wouldn't be able to. But on the flip side, like the really good accessibility like features, those take a lot of time. That takes a lot of development. I feel like the main reason why Bluepoint said this, and maybe I'm being naive, maybe I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt where they don't necessarily deserve it. I feel like there's been a lot of hubbub about how they outright said, oh yeah, we 
considered maybe adding in the sixth arch zone, which was never finished. And we even got the blessing from Miyazaki if we wanted to do so, but we decided that we wanted to be respectful and not do so. And looking at all the ever changes to the game, it feels very clear that maybe to a fault, Blue Point were terrified of making any sweeping changes to the game. And maybe the idea of like, oh, it's not really our our right to make these difficulty changes might have influenced it. And I feel like if they had mentioned that and they had made the argument for that, people wouldn't have gone under case quite as much. Rather but than the way the, it shouldn't. Yeah, that's, that's the way the they out. yeah, the way they they phrased it definitely didn't help them any, I'd say. Hmm. So let me let me pose it this way. If we or you or us or whatever, we're in charge of Demon Souls 2, Dark Souls 4, whatever, of adding a toggle or an accessibility option, how would we implement that? I'm wondering if it would just be something along the lines of like some sort of hurdle at, at a low HP value where you can't die, basically just like a god mode. Or I wonder if it would be something just like an ally that would fight the battle for you. I'm thinking kind of like the um, Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze, like the white ape that would play through the game with you for you if you're struggling. So there's a there's a couple ways you could do it, but yeah, like you mentioned, no matter what it is, it would require development time and resources that don't come you know for free. You'd have to, you know you can't just make the pie bigger. You'd have to take something else out with a fixed amount of resources. But yeah, it's a tough situation. I do want to fully sympathize with anyone that might not be able to play any of the Souls games because of lack of accessibility options. Your lived experiences and feelings are valid. If you feel like they should have um, accessibility options, that's completely valid and you're probably right. It's just as like I think we've kind of come to a conclusion, it's very tough and obviously developers they should put more of a priority on it, but it, it it's always tough. And it's well, it's yeah. I don't want to just hand wave and say like, well, it's hard, so we're going to do it. But yeah, the, the convoluting factor here is that a it require resources. B they're remaking someone else's property. They're like working on yeah. someone else's game, kind of in a way. So there's kind of few there's a few hurdles in the way, and I'm still I'm not that doesn't fully excuse it. But you can kind of see like at some point the decision has to be made if we want this to launch on. A very very specified date with yeah, the and I guess and guess the ever argument would be well obviously they asked well I'm not sure if they asked Miyazaki or if he like reached out to them but they were given the blessing to change the game to add the sixth arch zone if they desired they could have totally asked him if he would have been opposed to accessibility options maybe this would be a better argument for FromSoft's next game, where it's not a remake, or I guess we already know what that game is, Elden Ring. You think we'll hear more about that next year? We'll see if Elden Ring. I, has I hope. Ex- <laughs> yeah. I, regardless of whether it's accessibility options or what, I want to just hear something about Elden Ring. Besides, yeah, we're still working on it. Show us a screenshot or something, please. <laughs> so I think uh, none. Of, I think all of us are kind of on the same page. Where let's say Elden Ring releases and it has a toggle for God mode. Let me just put it simply like that. I don't think any of us here would really have like major umbrage with that. Yeah, I wouldn't use it. I I would just simply not use the God mode. Right, like just for my own enjoyment. Like if like I remember out of all the Souls bosses, the ones that I struggled with the most was the final boss of Bloodborne. 
was where I struggled the most. And like when I finally overcame it, that was like a joyous moment. And if I had just talked with Godmode to beat it, I would have like I would have cheapened myself out. But that's based on my own capabilities, where if someone who doesn't have, you know, the, the capability to do it because of poor motor movement in their fingers or or wh whatever disability, the form actually really doesn't matter. Um, if if for them it helps it allows them to have the same experience relative to it being completely out of reach that's a concession well, another way to that. think about it is like games like celeste like celeste has like a huge variety of accessibility features that do make the game significantly easier if you turn them on but despite the fact that those features are in the game you don't have any discourse about people using them to clear some of the hardest content in the game, like the B routes and the C routes. Like people don't care. Like, yeah, like for Dark Souls, I'm sure people would piss and moan if that ever happened. But once that original like pissing match happened, it's it definitely feels like once those are actually in, people just stop caring. They stop complaining about it because they understand, hey, you don't have to use them. I wonder, do you think this is fair? What if beating the game without the toggle on or whatever gave you like some sort of key item for your inventory, something ultimately meaningless, but something that said, hey, you're able to do this on. on I you. would not, I would not be shocked if accessibility features eventually were added to the game if that happened, because like Dark Souls 2 had those two rings, one from never using a bonfire and one from never dying. Oh, so, so I mean, yeah, so I actually forgot about that. So those are kind of already in place. So if they just put another tier for that, one one for not using the God Mode toggle, and then one for never dying, and then one for never saving or whatever, and they just tiered up like that, I don't see any. Issue I'm not with even that. sure. I'm not even sure if you really need to do that. But yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was just hypothetical. You someone might be saying, "Well, that's just all that's going to be used is ammunition for shame." Yeah, have, rubbing it have, in. I yeah. I don't necessarily think that's a. Yeah, I, yeah. I just thought of that after after I proposed it. I'm like, you know, that could be actually used in a kind of a toxic way, but we'll see if uh, the growing voice for more accessible options, even in these games that are classically difficult, if they're able to finally break through, and we'll see if it's not Elden Ring, maybe a different developer's take on it to include those, even on games that are supposed to be difficult. Before I wrap up, any other comments on Disgaea, Immortals, or what was the last one? Monster Hunter. Uh, inject Monster Hunter Rise directly into my veins. There you go. I'm, I'm not surprised that that is your takeaway. All right. So that wraps up this talk for today. A lot of dates, a lot of... We, you can start planning for next year up through May almost. We've had a couple of release dates, release windows. Uh, December is also starting to look kind of packed, especially with Cyberpunk there, but also with Haven and Outward and a few other releases that are kind of coming late in the year and Immortals, which has already been kind of situated in early December. Um, lots of cool details of Final Fantasy 16. Very happy to kind of dig into that. Maybe also a 2021 release, we can hope. And then uh, we'll move into November and new console generation. And maybe we'll have our hands on the DualSense controller. We don't get pre early preview access, sadly enough, but we will have our own impressions once we have people uh, get some time on with the PlayStation 5 and, of course, similar with the Xbox Series X, S. Um, 
So all those the all of those articles that we talked about, including the Genshin Impact feature and the Werewolf uh, Heart of the Forest review, are up on the website. We've got all the news and trailers that we talked about, including all the dates. Uh, pretty much, if you don't know, on our website, pretty much any game that is included on an article, we try to keep that updated like a database for all the all the uh, consoles it's releasing on and the release dates if we know them. So good resource for that. You can also click on the Discord link at the top of our page to join our, our Discord if you'd like. And also follow us on Twitter at RPG site, YouTube, RPG site net. And otherwise, we will be back next week with our first November edition of the podcast. Until then, take care and we'll see you next time.